You know what happens when you flip the light switch? How many people, dollars, and computers are involved to charge your smartphone? Do you understand the policy implications, political landmines, and local issues as we transition to clean energy? Well, we're here to answer those questions and more. Welcome to No Power. Hosted by informed industry experts Noha Sidholm and Michael Borgatti, No Power is all about demystifying the entire energy industry without getting into the politics, getting you more involved in the discussion, and empowering you with knowledge to make an intelligent choice today and the future. Head on over to nopowershow.com or wherever you get your podcasts so you can listen and subscribe and never miss an episode. And now, here are your hosts, Noha and Michael. Welcome to No Power. Today, we're talking to Pam Frank, who is the Vice President of Gable Associates, an energy consulting firm, and she's also CEO of Charge EVC, which is a trade organization that advances policies to electrify transportation. Obviously, a very hot topic and something that is really transforming and assisting our energy transition is electrification in, in the U.S., and, and she's been an integral player in that space for multiple years now. We ask her questions about whether the en- energy transition is really a social disruptor. We talk all things EV, and it's really just a very dynamic and fun interview with her. Yeah, Pam is absolutely one of my favorite people that I work with over here at Gable Associates. She's so funny. She's so smart. I think you're going to really learn a lot from her. We talk about oil companies no longer being oil companies and being energy companies. We talk about what does it take to actually electrify all of the vehicles that we use. And we talk about what are the steps that are necessary to actually accomplish the renewable energy transition. One of the things that I think is great, too, is that Pam has literally been at this since the early 1990s. So she's been involved in this for uh, for about as long as anyone that I know here and has an awful lot to offer for listeners on the on the pod today. So thanks so much for listening. Really excited and hope you enjoy the conversation with Pam. All right. Hi, Pam. Thank you so much for joining us. Welcome to the show. Hey, appreciate the opportunity. Absolutely. No, we're really happy to have you. So can you give us a little bit about your background? How did you get into the energy industry? What is it you do? Tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. So definitely not a straight line here. When I was an undergraduate at University of Vermont, back when Bernie Sanders was mayor at my alma mater, we didn't even have a word sustainability. We even have a major like that. So my undergraduate background was a little diverse, philosophy, biochemistry, political science, because I couldn't decide what I wanted to do. I then went to law school, dropped out, got a master's in public health, and ultimately wound up in energy, which makes sense to me. But the reason I got interested in it was one of my first jobs as a community organizer, which in 1992, we had the first Rio de Janeiro summit, Earth Summit. And one of my charges was to get involved in environmental issues for the community that I was working in, which I had no interest in whatsoever. But I started reading about climate change science. And for some reason that I can't even explain to myself all these years later, I got hooked. So my career has been more or less organized around chasing carbon. That's great. Can you describe a little bit about your job? Where do you work? What do you do? And how do you fit in the energy landscape? Sure. So I work for an energy consulting practice. There's a bunch of reasons why I really like that platform to do this work. Because I'm a consultant, I never really do one thing. I work with a number of clients, including groups running a trade association that focuses on electrification of transportation. So that's one interest area. I spent 10 years prior to consulting as a solar developer. So I still get involved in solar policy on behalf of a number of different clients and groups. And also emerging 
emerging technologies like storage in particular that I'm really interested in. But because I'm a consultant, if I want to get involved in a subject or an area, I need to figure out how to get paid for the work. So usually I can figure out how to do that. <laughs> and just full disclosure for our listeners, Pam and I work together at Gable Associates. So she's one of my favorite people at the firm. So that's the consultancy that we're thinking about. Paid him a lot of money to say that. <laughs> <laughs> Pam, that's so interesting. I didn't realize you also ran a trade association. I also, for our listeners, I have my own hedge fund trading power products, but I also run a trade association for power trading entities. And our entities do all sorts of stuff besides trading as well. They finance infrastructure, they're invested in the renewables movement for sure, and are very active in it, as well as offering folks that are developing assets the ability to hedge and long-term contracts. So I'm really curious to hear about what's your view of the current state of affairs for the energy industry? Are we in flux? People have been talking about the energy transition for, I feel like we're in the middle of it, but I really want to hear where you think we are and where you think we're headed. Well, that is a big question. So I'll say this, I feel better given that I started from a place where back in 1992, let's say I really cared about wanting to make a transition to low, if not zero carbon energy sources. In 1992, you were just starting at the very beginning and you were not feeling so good. When you looked at everything in the energy landscape, quite frankly, in 1992, I understood nothing except I wanted to change something. Fast forward all the way now, and I do feel like the energy landscape, and I'll tell you one proof of concept of this. I've got two members of the trade association that I run for electrification of transportation that are oil companies. And they tell me, oh, we no longer want to be known as an oil company. We're an energy company. So that tells you right away a lot. So we are at a place, I think, where there is a transition on a global scale that's happening. The question really at the end of the day is how quickly are we going to make that transition and how bumpy is it going to be? How orderly is it going to be? Fossil fuels are the way we've run our society and grown over the last hundred plus years. And to get off them is no easy feat. And there's a lot of potential disruption along the way. There's also a great prize at the end of all of this as well. If you can make energy cheap, clean, affordable, it changes lives. It changes Africa, changes a whole continent. There's a great prize here. But to answer your question is a long way of answering it. We are sort of at an inflection point where large companies that have really understood they need to change and they're doing so. We can see it. It's not just commercials they're running. It's the teams they've hired, the acquisitions. So I feel like things are happening. When you think about the phrase energy transition, is it just purely renewable energy for you or is it something broader than that? How would you describe the energy transition? If you were to tell somebody who had never heard that phrase before, what would you say it is? I like to keep it simple, Mike. <laughs> I think for my purpose, the energy transition means at its basic, getting off of fossil fuels. As I like to say, instead of fuels, we're going more towards flows, things that are renewable and sustainable and reoccurring. You can layer on top of that basic premise, ideas about equity, spreading out of wealth. Most of history, if you look at history, he who controls energy sources usually controls 
a lot. <laughs> and the concentration of wealth on fossil, we all understand. The question really becomes, and I think this is what I was alluding to when I said how quickly this transition happens, how bumpy it is, does it look like what it was? One example is rare earth minerals sitting at the bottom of the Pacific Ocean. Who gets those first? Who owns those? What does that ownership structure look like? So when we are thinking about all the technologies that are going to comprise renewable resources in scale, do we layer on top of that some change in the distribution of wealth? That starts to get into some other areas, but I tend to try to look at it very simply at first, which is let's just get off fossil fuels first. While we're doing that, if we are somewhat enlightened to be able to start to figure out how we spread the wealth, that's good too. So it can be a very broad definition. What do you think that timeline looks like getting off fossil fuels? Because I think there's been a lot of back and forth and, and obviously then the war through a wrench in that as well. That's something I've always wondered. Like Obviously, there are times when the sun doesn't shine and the wind doesn't blow, and, and I'm not sure that storage is quite there. I often feel a little bit bad for the gas industry because we're telling them, drill, 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 but then please don't be here in 10 years. How do we manage that? I think we need to think about doing things radically different. I mean, I believe that human beings are capable of extraordinary things. I don't think the time limit on that has to do with the pace of technology or even the proliferation of technology. I think the timeline of how this rolls out has to do with displacement, equity, politics, power, all of those human elements that are going to be intention with each other. That's why this is so hard to predict. If the global community came together as a true global community and said, this is our moonshot, we could get there rather quickly. That's my belief. But things are never that simple. And so in between, there's going to be wars. There's going to be a major refugee problem because of climate change and displacement. That's going to be adding tensions into this transition that are going to slow it down. It's very hard for me to put a timeline in place. I'm, I'm really not dodging the question. I'm just being realistic. And that's fine. I don't know that anybody has a crystal ball. I was just curious to hear your perspective. You know, same with transport, electrification of transportation. I remember going to a hearing, gosh, just maybe a year before the pandemic hit, and Senator King asking about electric cars and EIA just saying to them, well, that's a rich people problem. Well, it's not a rich people problem anymore. And that, that happened much faster than I expected. Yes. And this is what's interesting. I always say this about electric cars. They're gadgets. Like this is a gadget. And business models are now being created where people don't even necessarily have to buy them anymore. They can rent them. They can pay for monthly access. There's all kinds of things possible with this technology, which means once you make it economically feasible for everybody, just pay us $200 a month and you get access to any electric car you need at any time. Everyone's going to want to adopt this. And quite frankly, it can grow very, very quickly, assuming they can manufacture them quickly enough. Then the big question becomes, and I often say this to commissioners, to utility commissioners, the last call you ever want is someone who just got a new car because people love their cars and they can't hook it up. They can't plug it in. That's a call you never want to get. So I do think that the trend in this century is acceleration. Everything happens a lot faster than we think. <laughs> 
<laughs> that seems to be a trend that's not going away. So as I always say to planners, and I say to utility commissioners, this is going to be right at your doorstep before you know it. Right now, in some way, I don't know if you want to call the pandemic was not a blessing, but it slowed things down. It slowed down supply chains. As it turns out now, I think we would have been going gangbusters in many Zev states had manufacturing really been on its timetable to deliver these cars. Things are going a little more slowly, but that's not going to last forever. I was just going to say, I think when gas prices went up, that's at least what drove us to buy an electric car because we were a little bit worried about the issue you're talking about. Are there enough charging stations if you're not buying a Tesla? I mean, I think they're really the only ones that have a pretty sophisticated network so far. And then I live in California. We looked at each other and saw where gas prices were and commute times and be able to take the fast lane and thought this is a no brainer. So I just I wonder if the increase in gas prices made a also pushed in that direction. Listen, there's a few things, right? Gas prices go up. There is nothing as politically potent as prices at the pump. They are in people's face every day, every week. And there's nothing that's going to get people more upset or more aware than that price signal. It's just in their face all the time. So it's very powerful. And what's interesting, too, is if you think about how do you affect the energy landscape generally, we start from way back around. Where I'm a kid, I want to see carbon emissions go down. How can you impact that? The reason I was always so excited about transportation, in particular the car, was because a lot of people have them. <laughs> they don't keep them for 30 years like a power plant. They keep them for 7 to 11 years. And everyone loves to talk about them. It is sexy. It is and it is really storage. It is really a battery. So being able to really accelerate adoption of electric vehicles, and Elon Musk knows this. I always think Elon Musk was always about energy storage, and the car was a really convenient consumer product that would help him bring down the cost of batteries, of storage. I mean, he wants to leave the planet, so I think he needs to be focused on storage, right? Probably going to be, be helpful to get to Mars. And so, I mean... That's a totally interesting point, right? We're kind of thinking about this now in a different dynamic. You kind of defined the energy transition a little bit earlier as the move away from fossil fuels to renewable fuels. But I almost wonder if another component of this is just a change in the players in the landscape, right? And one of the things that strikes me is the EV space. To me, it's tremendous to think about how serious a firm like Ford or one of the other big major automobile companies must be taking this. And if we're watching the Super Bowl this last January, and here comes the Ford F-150 commercial with our square-jawed, lumberjack, masculine-looking friend driving a really cool truck all the way to his cabin in his woods with his beautiful family and all of that, and all of a sudden the lightning strikes and the lights go out, the only difference is our masculine friend saves the day by plugging his car into his house and turning all the lights back on again. It does feel like there's this element where the players are different, the intentions are different, and the business models are evolving. Do you see that as something that's pushing on this transition? Is it accelerating it? Is it a key component to you? How do you think about that? It's absolutely a key component. So what's interesting is it's so disruptive. Look, I think finally the car manufacturers have figured out that depending on how strategic they can and want to be, they can be the new big players on the block. These guys, in a way, when you think about it, making batteries is sort of akin to mining for oil or mining for fossil fuels, or it can be. So depending on how far downstream the OEM wants to go, remember what Ford did. 
If you've ever visited, what is it called? The Rouge plant for the River Rouge out in Michigan. One of the things you're reminded of was that Henry Ford took that entire campus and he turned it into a manufacturing hub that reached way downstream. He was bringing everything in he needed to make cars. The steel was happening there, the component parts, all of them molding, everything happened on that campus. So he was very strategic and then, by the way, helped when when he had to turn it into a wartime camp. That was actually a great strategic asset for the country. But in a similar way, these companies, these OEMs, some of them, Tesla's a great example of this. Look what Tesla's doing. They are not just making the car, they're making the batteries. I don't know how downstream they're going. Like if they've got ownership in lithium mines, I wouldn't be surprised if they have interest there, but they're really trying to be very strategic and holistic. And if you think about what that means, it puts them in competition with what I would say traditional oil companies. So the players are really changing and shaking up. And you're seeing strategic alliances form as well, which is really interesting. That's interesting that you, you've you referenced oil companies a few times now. And I actually just, you know, we're starting to look at carbon trading and renewable credits have seen a lot more liquidity in the last 18 months or so. And so I went to a carbon conference just to learn more. And it was a lot of folks from the oil world. And I just didn't expect that. It wasn't something I was anticipating. I hadn't really looked into it, but I'm curious where you see that transition going. And are those oil companies going to be storage companies, carbon companies, big investors in whatever comes next? Where do you see that movement driving? Well, I think that if I'm in the boardroom of those companies, I think I want everything you just ticked off, I want to be thinking about. And What's interesting is, I won't name the company, but five or six years ago, I was in front of an oil company that was talking about their diversification strategy. And they had uh, five or six different pathways and strategies. Electrification was one. But in the last six years, electrification has moved to the top of the stack. There's also obviously hydrogen. There's many more technologies. There's also the different battery chemistries that folks are working on beyond lithium, solid state. And there's quite a lot of R&D in this space that, again, if they're strategic, and they can, because part of the challenge here, as we know, is they have to wrestle out from under their stranded assets currently, but they have to wrestle out from under those assets to create something new. That glide path, how they move from here to here, some are going to make it, some aren't. So it's a really interesting time to watch and see the acquisitions, to see some of the partnerships that form because it's also the global market. And then you've got elements of it. What complicates things in some ways or maybe frustrates some of these companies is The United States, with the Inflation Reduction Act, put on the table a lot of sweeteners and incentives to bring the supply chain to North America. Some aren't, like I don't think Subaru is doing anything, but a bunch of other companies are figuring out ways to make stuff here. That really changes the supply chain as well. It's a really interesting time, and it's very hard to predict who's going to survive and who's going away. It's fascinating to me. It's interesting to think about those oil companies. Just pulled it up quickly just to give some sense of how huge they are. 
Shell's market cap is about $202 billion. Exelon, which I would argue is a pretty large utility, certainly here in the eastern two-thirds of the country where I live, is only about a $37 billion company. And when you think about these oil companies, they're very comfortable in a space where they deploy lots of capital upfront in EMP and things like that. And they have the ability and a level of comfort in creating those supply chains and putting those dollars to work. I almost wonder if they borrow from that business model and that is part of what fuels the direction that we're going here. Do you see like just the difference in the way they perceive the world affecting this or how does that factor in? I love that question, Mike, because it also makes me think about this, which is oil companies show up around public utility commissions. Like their commodity that they sell is not regulated. That's right. Absolutely. They're very comfortable with risk and lots (laughs) of it, right? Because I mean, huge, huge dollars. You enter into this arena where I always like to explain this to people that don't live in a regulatory world where we know what a peanut butter and jelly sandwich is, I think. We can all make one pretty quickly, right? But in a regulatory world, the commissioners may define jelly as ketchup. That's an absurd example, but the point is, it is a completely different context to sell product. And it takes getting used to, and it is a whole different way of operating. So (laughs) I've seen that. I'll call it shock and awe, and I don't say shock and awe in a good way, amongst oil folks, or I should say like recovering oil folks, when they're trying to get into the electricity game and how electricity may be sold is fundamentally different from the way they're used to doing business. That's not an easy chasm to cross. So it's interesting because you've talked about state regulators and meeting with those commissioners, consumers and their demand for gadgets and you know what's sexy to talk about. And then we've talked about the Inflation Reduction Act. So who do you think is really behind a lot? I mean, there's also corporate buyers. Who is pushing this the most? Who's having the most success pushing for this? Who do you view as the key drivers? It's a tough question. Listen, I go back to what California did so many years ago in deciding that they wanted to have their own regulatory framework under the Clean Air Act. And so this state, which is one of the largest economies on the planet and one of the largest car markets around, basically decides We have such a bad air quality problem in this state that we need to go beyond what our federal government is doing. And so through regulation, they created the conditions that created electric cars. The Tesla came about because of California's regulation. That wouldn't have happened otherwise. Similarly with solar, I worked in the solar development world in the early 2000s. The only reason there was a market was because the state of New Jersey created a renewable portfolio standard like a lot of other states did. So it started, and when you say sort of who are the drivers, I think this historically started in the states. If I could talk about North America, that usually is what happens when it comes to environmental regulation. These things start bubbling up from the states. But it also created some pretty big players out of knitting together how you operate in different states, which, by the way, is not easy because every state has their own rules, has their own incentives, has their own, you know, how that works. So I think folks that push for these types of regulatory changes, whether they're environmental groups, business associations, people may get surprised when they learn in the Garden State in New Jersey, 
The reason our electricity market deregulated in the late 1990s wasn't because people cared about environmental concerns. They cared about high prices and they wanted competition because they thought it would bring prices down. It had nothing to do with the environment, but that created a half a billion dollars a year called the Clean Energy Fund that could be spent on this kind of stuff, right? It gave the states some tools. So I think the regulatory world, all the players that exist in there, have really been driving the bus. And I think they're going to continue to drive the bus because they're going to keep ratcheting up timetables and goals. And now I think more and more, fortunately, some of the additional players that are going to be involved in this are some of the major companies that own utilities, some of the big oil companies that are trying to now become energy companies and diversify. They may be wanting to acquire some of those utilities and electric companies. I think it's a combination of forces, but I want to give credit where credit is due because I think this started, quite frankly, just with homegrown regulatory changes. So you're almost thinking of the states as like incubators here, if I think about that, right? Do you feel like the industry is like growing up and growing out of that? Or are they still in a place where those policies are the key factor that's pushing the transition? Well, you know that answer, Mike, because (laughs) 50 states, X number of commissions and rules. And so unfortunately, it's very hard to get to what I think a national electricity market. You can't. Just the way the, the laws are. And I'm not even advocating that should change, but it's going to be a really interesting world. It also, by the way, when you sort of balkanize this, that could be an interesting outcome for trying to promote more localized solutions. And here's something else I think about a lot, which is when electricity storage, as it will, becomes really affordable, ubiquitous. The whole construct of the grid, and we're going to do you think we're going to have a world where we need a grid, but is that grid centralized? Is it more microgrids connected to microgrids? What is going to be required for reliability, for redundancy? We've got more storms. The question is that whole structure starts to be some pressure. There already is to change how that's operating. So it's not kind of an all or nothing proposition. A squirrel trips on a line in Ohio and New York goes black. Literally. (laughs) Literally. That's interesting that you say that because we're obviously grappling with some reliability challenges and folks saying what's going to happen in 2030 when we integrate more renewable assets. How is this going to work as we retire other gas assets because they're no longer economical? How is this going to work? Do you think that historically there has been a more challenging time for reliability? Do you think now is the most challenging time? How do you view that? So when I was a kid growing up, in North Jersey in the 19, late 60s, 70s, we didn't have blackouts. Well, we called them blackouts back then, actually. I don't think we call them that now. But anyway, we call them grid outages. Or, but, but we didn't have that. I can remember it happening once in my lifetime because of some sort of a storm. But my kids have grown up with unreliable power. It's not unusual for them to experience power outages that have lasted a few days. It's just everything about the way they've grown up, right? Pandemics, you know, they've seen a lot of things that we never saw, right? It's just a much more destabilizing time. So I do think reliability now, at least for the consumer, I am not inside the system. So I can't tell you by looking at a whole bunch of different data sets that this is fundamentally more robust than it was 30 years ago. 
from a consumer's perspective, I will tell you that most people consider the grid unreliable today. I've got people in my neighborhood who always knock on my door because they know an energy person. They're saying, when's that battery cost going to come down? Or when can I use my car to power my house? Because I'm right on the edge of wanting to buy a gas generator because power goes down in the wintertime here. And this is suburban New Jersey. People don't want to throw out their refrigerator anymore. So it's for the consumer, I think this is much worse (laughs) to answer your question from a consumer perspective. In fact, some people often say to me when they're considering buying electric cars, they'll be like, well, the power is going to go out. But that is a concern for them and buying an electric car that they're not going to have electricity available. That's a little profound. (laughs) So how do you think we change that? How do we fix that problem? I mean, that sounds pretty serious to me. It is. I think it is really serious. I feel like energy is like the lifeblood of this organism, planet Earth. And if we cut it off, what's that? Life is nasty, short and brutish or whatever. I mean, things get really bad really quickly. And so one of the keys to helping shore up resiliency is redundancy. And we've never had the opportunity to have widespread redundancy in the system before energy storage became something possible we could all think about. So I always say to folks, again, you get an electric car, it's a big battery on wheels. We need to get to the day and we need to do this through 50 different PUCs and all the utilities and all the municipal, all those actors out there have to figure out the way this electricity starts to move both ways that can help ensure reliability in the system, that is a profound change for folks. And I think it would really, people's eyes light up when they first hear the idea of vehicle to grid. They light up. It's why I thought Ford was brilliant with the F-150, this V2G application that they advertised. Lord knows it's going to be difficult for them to actualize that in all the markets. It's going to be painful, but they'll have to do it. But that was a killer app in my opinion. So maybe just for our listeners, can you just describe V2G? What are you thinking about there? What is that? Right. So V2G stands for vehicle to grid. People also talk about vehicle to home, vehicle to building. Basically, the idea is that you could take your car battery and use the electricity that's stored in that car battery and pump it out to where you need it, whether it's in your house to power your refrigerator and your heat pumps because you're cold in the winter (laughs) if your power goes down, or you could use it to send it out to the grid. When the grid, say, on a really hot day, it's at max capacity and you hear those announcements about we've reached peak load and everyone's generators are on and we're using record power, well, maybe we don't need all those generators if we take most of the cars, then let's face it, How many hours a day do you drive a car? You're not driving a car 24 hours. Maybe you're driving a car two to three hours at the most. All of those other hours, theoretically, you have a battery available to the grid. So that's what I mean when we say vehicle to grid or vehicle to home is really the idea that electricity can run both ways. You can plug your car in and charge your battery, and then you can discharge your battery either for the benefit of running your home or maybe some market value out to the grid. I actually just don't know this. If I wanted to use that car to power my fridge and my heat pumps, what's my time horizon? And so I can't give you a simple answer. It depends on, but I'll say it's a solvable problem. It depends on the capacity in your battery. You don't want to drain your battery. Maybe you want to use 
70% of your battery in an extreme outage situation and always leave 30% reserve. And it really depends on what the load of your refrigerator is going to be and what other circuits you'd want to hook it up to. And you could get longer time out of your refrigerator if maybe you increase the temperature in your refrigerator a couple of degrees. So there's a lot of different ways to tether this so that you could get, if the power's out for a week, you could figure out a way to basically exist. I'm not going to say it's going to be exactly comfortable, but it would be a heck of a lot better than the situation we find ourselves in where the refrigerator's just dark. And I think it's going to take some time for us to figure out how to optimize some of that stuff. I mean, it's it's, right when you were talking about gadgets and the phone, my phone now optimizes its own battery charging at night. Yes, yes, yes. And cars will do that too. Yeah, it'll be important for cars to do that too with the grid. That's a really important feature of all of these cars plugging in. And it's something we haven't talked about, which is how do you manage a million points of light? You've got all of these grid edge technology, all these cars at the edge of the grid pulling overnight the charge they need. And that has to be managed in some way. I'm curious what you can share with our listeners about this, because I know that there are companies that have been working on this for a long time that are figuring out, for example, my husband goes to his office and they rotate the cars to make sure they have enough for folks to get home. So there's already folks that are looking at this that are thinking ahead of, okay, well, we can't have all of these cars charging at night or at least the same hours in the evening. We have to figure out how to optimize this. Where are we in that discussion? In a place like California, you have, and I know all your listeners may not understand the duck curve, but I'm going to give everyone who's listening an assignment, which is go Google duck curve in California, because it's very interesting for people that really want to understand this energy stuff. But the idea that you've got so much solar electricity in California, which is a sunny state, being produced in the middle of the day means it's available to charge cars. It may be much more than you actually need in California to cool all the buildings. So you should use these batteries as a sink and it would be optimal workplace charging or any place where cars are going to be for a long period of time to be able to use solar electricity to charge those cars. Now, what's interesting about that is in the evening time, forever and ever and ever, as long as we've had electricity, we've thought about peak usage in terms of cooling on hot summer days, or maybe sometimes in the extreme winter times as well. That's been a recent phenomenon on peak usage, right? Peak usage being the idea that that is the time where electricity demand is at its absolute highest. And it's easy for everyone to understand that on oh, 110 degrees in Los Angeles, and everyone's cranking up their air conditioner. That's probably going to be a peak usage. And we're used to designing our systems, our electric systems, around those predictable peak times. What may, I believe what's going to happen in the future with ubiquitous energy storage is I always like to say flatlining, which is not good for human biological systems, but it's really good for energy systems, right? Where you don't have peaks anymore. You're able to more or less keep load flat. And that's because it's a two-way street now. It wasn't always, but now it's a two-way street. So this becomes a very dynamic market. And the idea of we don't want to just shift peak. If we bring everybody charging cars in the evening, and we have a new problem at a new time. That's really not 
what have we done, right? We just shifted the problem. To circle back to what Noha was saying, maybe a little bit here, I hear you on like, when do the cars charge off of the grid and when does the solar panels create energy for that? But it almost feels like there's another missing piece there, which is when you use your car to charge all of the stuff. When is it running your fridge versus sitting there in your garage and just being a car waiting for you needing to use it? Is there another missing piece here? Do you need Google's Nest to run your car and fridge and optimize all that? Is there some tech role or is there some other linkage that we need to figure this out? The folks in Silicon Valley are busy as bees trying to figure out all the software that's going to be talking to your refrigerator and your microwave and your car and being able to optimize and the temperature in your house. Remember, at least in this part of the country, there's a lot of discussion about electrifying space heating. And so that's a whole other conversation. But That's part of the picture here. That's part of reducing carbon is getting off natural gas and being able to transition to different heating sources. And electricity is looked at as one of those. And there are some benefits by having electrification sort of stand at the center of all your needs. And you can create electricity a whole bunch of different ways. So there's some nice flexibility in the system there. But it also entails, to your point, Mike, a system of controls and intelligence and communication that doesn't exist today. So it's that's a whole field. That's a whole exciting field. I think that sounds incredible. But just to harken back, I mean, is that a five-year thing where we get there? Is that a 10-year thing, 20-year thing? Am I retired? I think that's available a lot faster than we believe. I think, again, it's regulatory. Uh, it's going to be enabled by regulation. There are real concerns about privacy, about data, about mischief that can be done that we don't want to trivialize. But the platforms, I think, are well under development today. Some of them are even out in the market running in limited ways. It's really interesting because you talked before about, you know, there are 50 states and there's sort of, and Mike mentioned, there were sort of like incubators. And we talk about California. California is very unique and does have a lot of solar But also, yes, there are parts of California that are warm. We moved to LA in the middle of the pandemic and I was thinking, great, it's going to be really warm. It's actually not that warm here. The sun is shining, but it is not hot because we're obviously getting a lot of ocean breeze. And so we really have the perfect scenario for the solar EV blend to work well. You go to Arizona, that's not happening. It's a different skill set. People in LA are not dying of heat. People in Arizona can die of heat. It's a different dynamic. And it's interesting, as we're talking about all these smart devices and people figuring out where the technology is going, there are a lot of different scenario sets for them to deal with. And you're right. So there's also different risks. In LA, you have fire risks. We don't have that in the East Coast, but we've got flooding and hurricanes and winds. There are every environment, I think, is going to find itself challenged in unique ways. But that's why the concept of microgrids are so powerful. Because if you can create redundant, replicable ability to isolate in a location, to be able to keep a location up and running, maybe not 100%, but maybe 50%. That's going to give us some very powerful tools to insulate ourselves against a complete system failure. You talked earlier about competition and Jersey people basically saying, I just care about my power bill. I obviously think that's really important. And can we maintain that at a microgrid level? And how much can we expect of the consumer in this transition? 
That's such a good question. So for years, I was sitting up in New York in Albany on all of the forming the energy vision rev proceedings. They talked about this prosumer, which was some idealized version of a consumer that plays an active role in the energy market. And I laughed a little bit about that because, quite frankly, I'm not a big believer that most people are going to spend any time in this market unless they can do it on a sort of autopilot way, which I'm sure some smart companies can figure out a way to opt people into that. Um, So they're participating and they don't actually have to do anything. And I think where that has legs, if you would, is in the real power, again, of aggregating a lot of the grid edge things, a lot of the grid edge gadgets, the car being the biggest one, obviously, but if you accumulated all the refrigerators in my town, (laughs) sure, you might be able to do something interesting. So aggregators, I think, potentially play a really interesting role in this transition as a sort of stand in for the consumer or prosumer that can help animate their resources to be grid assets. And again, we're just talking about this very dynamic market. It's very different from today where we have everything that goes one way in one direction. So I keep coming back to the same theme. And this is really complex. It's not making light of it. But that's why, to Mike's point before, you need some really smart software. You need to feed intelligence into the system. And you need the permissions and safeguards against privacy and mischief. Yeah, that's a really great point. And I want to maybe circle back to something you said at the earlier part of the conversation, just about the democratization of clean energy and transition here. And I'm certainly a big believer in competitive markets and competition, but it also directly involves engagement, understanding, activism by the consumers themselves. And we've seen in jurisdictions that have retail choice some concerns in contracts that customers have signed up for and things. As we're imagining this increasingly complex, dynamic world that we're talking about here, how do we make sure that we're producing a future that is equitable and is attainable across the spectrum here? How do we make sure that we sort of maintain that egalitarian or democratization quality that you were talking about? I'm glad you're asking me really simple questions, Mike. (laughs) Only the easy ones for you, Pam. And that's hard. Look, I I don't think it's a popular answer, what I'm going to say. I am a big believer in markets, but I'm also a big believer in smart regulation. And I've spent my life around those worlds where we have a lot of improvement. (laughs) We have to get a lot smarter about the way we regulate. I don't have a great answer for this, except that I think electricity is kind of, like I said, the lifeblood. I think it is such an essential commodity that we need strong regulation around it. But we also have to make room, if you would, for the market activity that can accelerate the solutions that we need. I just think we could do a lot better in how we regulate the processes through which we regulate the people that get invited into that conversation. I just think I'm a big fan of saying we need innovation, not just in the technology, but in processes as well. I never really see concerted attention and effort on that part of the equation, on how we innovate around process. So I guess if you could wave your magic wand and say, okay, here's how I want to innovate process, what does that look like? Like, what should we be doing? Well, I'll give you an example. 
because I don't think there's one blanket answer. I can look at something and say, that's a solution that might work well. (laughs) So one example is in certain regulatory agencies, you've got, and I don't know, and this is what's so interesting about these groups, this gets into sort of power dynamics as well. Regulators like to regulate, that also confers in them a certain power against the private sector. And I've seen how that plays out over the years in a way that's not so beneficial. So one example, some agencies really like to command and control solutions. <laughs> they may never come out and say that, but their process, if you look at the process they use, it shows you they want that pen. They want a certain kind of control. You know, you could flip that on its head and say, here's what we want as a solution. We invite the private sector to come in with their ideas. That turns it upside down. Instead of saying the regulators need to set rules and parameters and really come up with the solutions, we want the market to propose solutions first to address a problem we identify. Now, that's a little simplistic, but it could have, well, I know in certain cases, it would be a radical change that could help speed up the process for how programs and policies get implemented. I think that's an excellent example. I started out my career as a regulatory lawyer. I was at FERC and it's the same. I agree with you. Rather than starting out with, here's our proposed solution, which is actually how most proposed rulemakings work. Here's our proposed solution. Come back to us and tell us what you think, industry. Meanwhile, industry might be going in an entirely different direction with a solution that they then have to go to the regulator for approval on. It's hard to measure what you never know could have been. (laughs) It feels like a lot of missed opportunities over the years. You're right. It does box out. Newcomers to this world have an uphill battle, I think. You were talking about the oil companies, and they have a lot of resources. But I've seen people just come into some of these different stakeholder processes that are not in the know. They don't know everybody there. They haven't been in the room. And there's just the skepticism around what they're saying because they're new. And I always wonder, I mean, I'm curious your perspective. Do you think that has hurt us in addressing the equality piece, the social justice, the democratization part of this? Absolutely. I think a lot of these rooms are unfriendly. They're not accessible. The language is arcane and full of acronyms that people don't understand. And to be fair, I think There's a couple of different ways you could approach being more inclusive in getting viewpoints. Sometimes what is needed, and I work with some foundations, and an example, a foundation really wants to bring people of color into those rooms because they really haven't been fairly represented. We designate certain areas of the state as overburdened communities, which have had their fair share of environmental injustices through the last hundred years. And if you really want to bring folks like that into those rooms, There is a couple of ways you could do that. But one way you could do that is, which I kind of like, is resource those groups and get them the best and brightest lobbyists available that can walk into those rooms armed and ready and they hit the ground running. I mean, there's another school of thought that says just kind of grow up these grassroots leaders for them to be able to do battle in those rooms themselves. That's noble, but it takes time. I feel like we already have a lot of really sophisticated people out there that want to do good stuff. Put them to work for these communities. Empower them and resource those communities to be able to get the best and brightest. 
in there on their behalf. And you'll see a lot of changes. Right. Because the other approach of, oh, just grow grassroots leaders is great. But then those grassroots leaders are going up against very well-funded lobbyists. In my experience, a losing scenario almost every single time. It is. And to be fair, I hope my environmental colleagues don't skin me for this, but even the most well-off environmental groups go into those meetings and are just, they're no match because they don't have the technical sophistication on a lot of the details you need to be moving those conversations in the direction you want them to go. It's challenging. But even at levels where you may have an organization fairly well-resourced, they're just not hiring the right people to help them win the day. We've also become so data-driven. If you don't have access to that data, it's really hard for you to put forward a great case. And that takes money and resources and somebody who knows what to do with it. Yeah, I love that solution of arming folks with the best and the brightest out there. You know, as a consultant, I'm a mercenary. I get paid by folks to know this stuff, to be very good at explaining it, to be able to access all that information and weaponize it. That's what we do. We change stuff all day long. And if you provide that access in a different context, you can get a different outcome. So I wonder if it's just resourcing to solve for a different end state here, which is, I think, what you're saying, Pam. And that resonates as a great idea for me. Yep. I think it's also about corporate responsibility. And that has, a, I think, a different meaning than it did 10 years ago. Well, it's changing. I do think, you know, I've been in some of those rooms lately and it's changing. I also think what's interesting is some of the software, some of the intelligence. I heard our former Vice President Al Gore talking about some really interesting software that's able to track exactly where emissions are coming from, carbon emissions in particular, from any plant on the entire planet. And it's sort of like, well, you can run and you can't hide anymore. So I think for corporations that like greenwashing is going to become a lot more difficult. Uh, very much so. PJM is publishing emissions rates by node. So there's 1,500 pricing points of PJM and they have literally the hourly emissions rate. So you can watch when a generator clicks on or off what the emissions profile is. So I do agree. I think that that idea that you can pollute in one place and then buy clean power somewhere else, that's going to become a more challenging structure to, to justify over time. Yeah. And consumers know it. You're going to be able to show consumers you want to buy these little iPods or AirPods or whatever they're called. I'm going to tell you exactly the story of how these things came to be. No, for sure. This has been fabulous. I can't thank you enough for joining us here. I guess, what would you have asked you if you were hosting a podcast? What did we forget to ask you about? <laughs> That's a good question, Mike. <laughs> what would I ask me? Actually, I guess one of the things I would have asked me is, because I hear this from people a lot, which is, how do you get involved? Where do you start? Even if you're a young person and you're looking at this space and you really want to make an impact? How do you even start? It's so overwhelming. And that's the question I would probably ask me, but I'm not going to give you an answer on this podcast. You're going to have to wait to hear it in another segment. Is that what we call a teaser? Oh, cliffhanger. I like it. I like it. <laughs> well, this has been wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. Good to be with both of you guys. You've been listening to No Power, hosted by Noha Sidholm and Michael Borgatti. Head on over to nopowershow.com, that's K-N-O-W, where you can subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform. We'll see you next time on No Power.